Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, get them open to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one to see back in front of you. If you get it and open to page 855, you'll be where we uh, are going to be this morning, which is in Matthew chapter 1. I want to thank the uh, praise team uh, for leading us this morning and rolling with the call an audible. Uh, Grace hopping down to literally a different piano. It's, and that was nice. And, uh, um, and, and also... Uh, I had a pastor, uh, I had a pastor, I heard a pastor say once that you are what you celebrate, right? And a lot of times people um, think that the point of the church is the gathering, right? That, that we gather and then we're the church and that's it. But the gatherings are to equip us to go, right? To go and be the hands and feet of Christ. And so there are a couple of things that happened this week that we want to celebrate this morning. The first is that our uh, sunshine circle that made all those uh, lap blankets and lap robes that you saw out there the last couple of weeks. They took uh, the ones that were left over and went into six different nursing homes in our community this week and uh, handed them out to people who needed them. And, and uh, some of the staff said uh, that some of the relatives, uh, some of the nursing home residents don't have relatives nearby and so they don't get anything for Christmas. And so they're actually going to wrap them and let them open them on Christmas morning. So that was really cool. And then uh, yesterday, our community outreach team uh, uh, passed out 101 Christmas meals, right, um, to uh, the community and those who RSVP'd, including many that didn't. And so if you are on uh, the Sunshine Circle team or community outreach team, could you do me a favor and just kind of raise your hand for everybody this morning so we can see everybody who's involved with that? All right, in church, can we thank them this morning for all they did? Um, it is not by accident that God placed us where he's placed us. And so we want to make an impact on a community. We, we hope uh, that those, acts, those actions can serve as seeds uh, for the gospel as well. And so we'll be praying for that in the days to come. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer before we jump into uh, today's sermon. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, for each person who's here, uh, each person who's joined us online, everybody who, who will walk into this building today to set aside this time, um, hopefully to learn from you. And, and we uh, pray that you would just bring that home. We know they're not here by accident. Um, you've already joined us in the worship of your name. You've already been present in our fellowship, God. And so now uh, speak powerfully through your word. Um, would you uh, get the glory from all this and just have your way in this room today? And we ask this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, in 1969, the New York Times reported a story on the shortest sermon in history. I'm not going to beat it today, okay? Um, the shortest sermon in history was given by Ray Delamotte, who was the chaplain of Payne College in Georgia at the time. And the shortest sermon in history had, a, a, ironically, a rather long title. And so what uh, Ray Delamont did was he uh, had displayed really big on the stage the title of his message so people could read it when they came in. And the title was this. What does Christ answer when we ask, Lord, what's in this for me? And the title displayed really big, and so the students came in and filed in for their seats when chapel would start, and he waited more minutes, and he waited a few more minutes so they could just read that title and think about it, and then he came out to give a sermon. And he walked out on stage, and he grabbed the mic, and he said one single word, nothing, and then turned around and walked off. Worried about this sermon spread, and so they called, the reporter called and asked him about it, and he said the sermon was designed for his students who were brought up on what he called the gimme, gimme gospel of positive thinking, that you could ask more and more and more from the Lord. The follow-up question was simple. He said, how long did it take you to prepare that one-word sermon? And he said, 20 years. Now, Delamotte's concern in the 60s has actually become prophetic of our day. Because there's an ideology that has taken root in churches in Western cultures. And this ideology is heavy on grace, but empty on cost. 
It's huge on freedom and lacking in sacrifice. It sings of blessings, but avoids all selflessness. And in adopting this outlook and this mindset, a lot has changed, right? Consumerism has become rampant in the church. We, we expect now that, that God's work in our life, that it should only look like blessings. We want our churches to quote unquote feed us, but we rarely burn any of it off. And we actually begin to believe that God owes us a life of ease and comfort due to our faith in him. In fact, we, we actually begin to immediately assume that any hardship or any cost in something means that God's not in it. Right? That any hurdle we face means that God is not behind something, when sometimes it's the hurdle and the hardships that are God's point. And what happens in all of this is that the very people who claim that the Bible has authority in all matters end up living lives that do not conform to the scriptures at all. We're in the second week of our series called Look Up. It's a different take on Advent this year. And, and we introduced you to the idea of what we mean by this last week. And we, talk, we talked about this term navel-gazing. It's defined as a self-indulgent or excessive contemplation of oneself at the expense of a wider view. That's, that's the literal definition. It's more simply put that you think about yourself so much that you miss what's happening around you. And, and to kick off this idea, we looked last week at an event where Jesus is in Samaria talking with a woman at the well, and his disciples come up, and they are completely lost, and they're completely confused as to what's going on, and they're not even trying to learn because they're navel-gazing. They're thinking only of themselves. And Jesus' command to them was clear, open your eyes and look up. Look, look out at the fields, because God is at work, and, and they are ripe for harvest. And we told you that for this series, our focus was going to be going to war against navel-gazing, to, to, to try to stop thinking of ourselves all the time. And while that's our focus today, what I want us to do is I want us to understand the cost in that. Because there will be costs. But more so than that, I don't want us just to understand the cost. I want us to willingly embrace it. So I wish I could be funnier, more lighthearted today. I'll try at times. But we need to go to war against the false gospel that our hearts want to believe. And to do so, we're going to look at a character in the Christmas story. And so if you're cost avoidant, right? If you, if you think that God's work in your life can only be blessings, if you resist every hard thing in your life, well, then too often you're like me. And I'm glad we're both here today. And I pray God will use his word to crucify this in us. And so I'm going to invite Chris Mathis up to read today's passage. He's going to be reading for us Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with him to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Morning. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from the sins, from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Jesus woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded 
and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. Thank you, Chris. You can have a seat. Please uh, keep your Bibles open to Matthew 1, because today we're going we're gonna to take a deeper dive into Joseph's story, right? He's often, I think, the most forgotten uh, character of, of, the, uh, of the Christmas story. We, he's there in every picture of the nativity scene, right? Well, not everyone. Um, we have a, a little kind of a toy nativity scene at our house, and uh, somehow the twins lost Joseph, right? And so uh, yesterday, Corinne just put a shepherd there, and I was like, that's fitting for what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Let's just get Joseph out of the way, because he's kind of like a groom at a wedding. He's important, but nobody's there to look at him, right? And every time you see a nativity scene, that they're still, and they're peaceful, and everything looks great, and so it would be really easy to lose sight of just how monumental and disturbing and life-altering this event would be for Joseph. And verse 18 begins to tell us the part of the story that we think we know. And then the CSB refers to it that, that Mary has been engaged to Joseph, right? The actual term there is to be pledged or betrothed to. And it's a little different than our customs, right? Today, a, a guy will buy a ring and he plans some kind of special event. And he gets down on one knee and he asks the girl to marry him. And this kicks off uh, months of planning and stress and all kinds of things going into this one marriage event where you share your vows of commitment to one another and you're joined in marriage and then that's it. Well, Mary and Joseph kind of had almost the opposite experience, right? Where they would have had to first go to the town gate there in Nazareth, which is where all the business was done. And there in front of the elders of their town, they would declare their desire to be married. And, and on that day, right, they would have to say their vows. And so in front of the elders, after they declared their vows, they'd have to say their vows of commitment to one another. And from that moment on, they would be legally joined together. Only divorce could separate this. But what, this wouldn't start their marriage. It would start a 12-month waiting period known as the betrothal period. It's why she was pledged or betrothed to Joseph. That only after they were apart for one year could they then move in, live together, and consummate the marriage. And so they do this, right? They go to the town gate, and they're betrothed, and they say their vows, and, 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 they're, and now they're in their waiting period, and everything is going well until one day when Mary returns home from visiting her cousin Elizabeth. And I love the way Matthew phrases it. He says, it was discovered that she was pregnant, right? Just, just kind of came out, right? And you're gonna, we're going to look at Luke 1 a lot next week, but in Luke 1, an angel, Gabriel, uh, visits Mary, and, and he gives her this message. The angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Now if you know the story, you know at that point, Mary has a very relevant question, which is how in the world is this going to happen because I've never been with a man? And this is the angel's answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, the choice that's left there for Mary is the same choice that's left there for us. There are actually really deep theological reasons why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. He had to have the fullness of humanity without any of the curse of our sinful nature. It actually is what helps make the rest of the gospel possible. It's what makes his death sacrificial because the cross of Christ isn't substitutionary if Jesus isn't sinless. The cross of Christ isn't substitutionary without the virgin birth. But even to lay that aside for a second, the question that you're left with is this. Is anything impossible for God? Because no, virgins don't get pregnant. This doesn't happen. Not in any normal case. 
But if God is big enough to create the universe and he's big enough to breathe life into all of us, he's powerful enough to create life in any way he chooses. And if you struggle to believe that he can do that, then you'll have a hard time ever accepting what it takes for him to save your soul or give you eternal life. But you see, this part of the story is the part that we always romanticize. That angel, an angel visits Mary and tells her this great news there's going to be this miraculous birth that she is going to give birth to the Son of God. God is coming to her. She's going to be blessed among women. And Joseph, eh, you know, an angel will fill him in later, right? He'll understand everything. It's all going to be fine. Jump to manger, sing, let's sing Silent Night, Peace on Earth. And that's how it went, right? Well, not really. Because you know who wasn't with Mary in Luke chapter 1? Joseph. He doesn't get the download. He knows nothing of an angel visit, nothing of a miracle pregnancy. And with that little detail that he wasn't there and didn't get the news, these two people are now left in a, in a terrific and great tension. Because now Mary has to approach Joseph and do the whole we need to talk thing. Guys will tell you we need to talk is never a good thing, right? And I'm sure, I'm sure she tried to tell him what the angel said. But come on. Right? Put yourself in his shoes. Would, would you believe her? Like we said, this doesn't happen. The only two things that Joseph knows for sure are this. Number one, his fiance is pregnant. And number two, he's not the father. And I want you to think of how embarrassing and shameful and hurtful that would be. It would have the, the intense sting of betrayal and unfaithfulness. And at this point, Joseph makes a decision. Verse 19 so her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Again, I want you to understand, reading this through our eyes, we make this sound way too simple. It, see, it reads straightforward, right? He, he's ending it, right? He's going to end the betrothal. He's just going to divorce her. He's going to move on. He's not going to put her through any more public shame than she already have. Best case scenario, they'll all just kind of go on with their lives. But none of it's that simple. None of it. And it all goes back to this title that's given Joseph in this verse when it says that he is a righteous man. The CSB actually says being a righteous man. That's how the NLT puts it and the NASB puts it. If you have the ESV or King James, it says being a just man. The NIV is actually in the latest iteration throwing a little curveball. It says because Joseph was faithful to the law. And they're all getting at the same idea, that being a righteous Jewish man who is faithful to law would mean one thing in Joseph's day, that Joseph was known as a member of the Sadiq. To be seen and known as a Sadiq in Hebrew culture was the highest honor, just as every athlete wants to be an all-star, every businessman wants to be CEO, and every politician wants to be president, every Jewish man would love to be a Sadiq. Because being with Asadi came with the utmost respect of your community. It came with great honor. It came with a reputation for how faithful you were to the law and how well you knew the law. Asadi's entire identity would be wrapped around how committed he was to the Torah. And I point this out because the decision that Joseph makes in verse 19 is not a decision Asadi would make. In fact, there's grammar being done here that's led to some debate among scholars, and I know you're pumped to, to talk about grammar this morning, right? That phrase, being a righteous person, is actually a Greek participle, that, and a participle can be translated nine different ways into English based on its context. It could be being a righteous person, although he was a righteous person, in, in, in spite of being a righteous person, all these different things. 
And so some Jewish scholars today actually argue that what Matthew meant was, although Joseph was righteous, he set about to divorce her quietly. Now, I think it's fine as it reads, and we'll get to why in a second. But here's why that debate is happening. It's because the Sadiq's course of action would be crystal clear. There'd be no debate. The law spells out clearly what he should do. And Joseph would know it, and as a Zadik would be expected to follow it. That he would take Mary to the same town gate that they were betrothed at, and he would publicly, in front of everyone, label her an adulteress. And Joseph, on that moment, would be granted a clean divorce. Right? His, his reputation would be unharmed. He could go about the rest of his life not worrying about this ever again. But Mary? Well, at best, right? at best, she'd be granted public ridicule and scorn. And at worst, she could then be led by Joseph to her father's home or their nearest relative's home and be stoned to death. And every single Sadiq would know this course of action because they would know the law and the law must be followed and standards must be kept and sinners must be exposed. And faced with the news of this pregnancy, Joseph has to agonize over this decision. Will he be a Zadik? Will he follow the letter of the law? Will he get his revenge? Will he be righteous? Or will he choose mercy and let her live? Give her a chance to start over somewhere else and give him this much credit with no other knowledge at all. He chose mercy. And that, not before, that is when he hears from the Lord. Verse 20. But after he had considered these things, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from his sin. Now, does anybody else have a problem with that? I do. And my issue has to do with timing. Couldn't God have saved Joseph all kinds of angst and hurt and wrestling? Couldn't he just appeared to Joseph and dream the same time that he appears to Mary and they could have been united on this all throughout the process? All of it could have been cleared up, right? But what if that was the point? You see, one of, one of the ways to break the habit of navel-gazing is realizing that God's plans for you are not an easy and trouble-free life. That material comfort and easy living aren't goals that God has for you. I mean, think about it. The timing and events of this story tell us these things. Number one, God didn't care if Joseph's decisions were easy. God didn't care to make everything smooth for Joseph. God didn't care if Joseph was popular or liked or respected. He didn't care. But God did care about Joseph's character. And character is best molded in discomfort. God did care about others, and others can sometimes only be blessed through sacrifice. You see, just... When he told them, tells us that God wanted the wrestling for Joseph. He wanted Joseph to agonize over this. He wanted Joseph to make a decision. Would he do what would give him the most popularity and the most respect? Would he do what was best for him? Or would he do what was best for Mary and what was merciful and what was actually right? He wanted Joseph to model what true righteousness really is. And he wanted that in part because Joseph's decisions aren't over. Because again, we, uh, repeatedly, we make this story way too simple and way too easy. An angel came and cleared it all up, right? Everything's good now. Conflict over. Except it's not. Because I want you to notice the language of the message to Joseph that God's angel used. He says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. 
Not don't be angry with her. Don't be hurt. Don't be upset. Don't be afraid. Why? Because now Joseph's decision is even harder. Now that he knows Mary's telling the truth, he has two options. Number one, he can carry on with the quiet divorce. And no one will ever know except him and God. And no one would ever blame him. And he'll still be respected, and he'll still be a Zadik, and he'll still keep his standing and reputation in the community, and he'll never have to face this headache that he didn't choose, by the way. He'll never have to face it again. Or he could do the right thing, and he could take Mary as his wife and accept the son as his own and name him Jesus, and he's not stupid. He knows if he does that, not a single person will ever believe him. It's not even worth telling their side of the story. The only reasonable explanation is that these two couldn't control themselves and broke the law, and they will both become outcasts, and their friends and family will never accept their side of the story, and his reputation will be permanently stained, and he will never, ever, ever again be considered a Zadik. And so what does he do? Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. That is what a Sadiq looks like. That's true righteousness. Once you know it's the timing that Matthew tells us, it says that when he woke up, he immediately set about a course of action to obey God. He didn't wrestle with it this time. He just obeyed. And he does two things that will stain his reputation forever. Number one, he takes Mary in her state as his wife. He's publicly claiming her as his own. And then secondly, he named the baby which in Jewish culture is publicly adopting this. He's claiming to be the father of this child. Basically, for everyone who believed he and Mary slept together before marriage, he just gave them everything they will ever need to convict them. His days as a Sadiq are officially over. And we see the impact of this in the Gospels. In Mark 6, Jesus returns to Nazareth, the town where all this went down. And he's teaching, and, and, and the Nazarenes are having a hard time accepting Jesus because they know too much. They know his story. They know what family he comes from, and they're offended by him. And Mark 6, 3 tells us this. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And so they're offended by him. Now, by the time Mark 6 comes around, Joseph's already dead. But even, you need to understand Hebrew culture, even after your death, one is always, every single time, referred to as the son of, of their father. So to be called son of your mother in Aramaic is an incredibly crude, cruel, and mean expression. It's, it's very similar to a crude expression in our day in our language, except the disrespect in our language is always meant for the mother. This one is meant directly for the father. And this little detail shows us that years later in the village of Nazareth, Joseph's reputation never recovered. After his death, he's still an outcast they just decide to ignore in one decision, he goes from Sadiq to scorn, from Sadiq to outcast, from Sadiq to shame, and he didn't do anything wrong. Now, I hope this gives you a little more respect for the decision that Joseph made, but I also hope that we can do two other things as we close. And the first is just try to understand a glimpse of what God was up to in all this. And I always say glimpse because there's no way we'll ever know the full picture of what God was doing. But here's, here's what I would suggest. Number one, we, we've, we've been studying Mark as a church. And we're only a couple chapters in, but have, have you not noticed already Jesus' incredibly unique capacity to show mercy and compassion to those who are considered sinners and outcasts? 
Have you not noticed that Jesus always spent time with those that all other Sadiqs would avoid? How he dined with tax collectors, let prostitutes wash his feet, touched lepers. I think, I think being raised in a home of outcasts only helped his heart towards them. And I wonder sometimes if in showing compassion and mercy to them, if, if his stepfather showing compassion to his mother wasn't in the back of Jesus' mind. I also wonder if in Matthew 5, when, when Jesus says, if he wasn't thinking of Joseph, when he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never get in the kingdom of heaven. He says, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the Sadiqs, you're never going to get in. I think he was thinking of Joseph at that time. And secondly, as we as a church ask the Lord to free us up from navel gazing, as we try to get over ourselves and honor God, as we try to make decisions as selfless as Joseph did here, I want us to ask what we can take away from the story. And, and the first thing that I would, I would suggest is this, is, is don't despise the wrestling. If you're facing a decision this morning, or you're in a season where you, you just need clarity and wisdom from the Lord, or you're going through a difficult time that you, you want to be over now, right? In fact, you wanted to be over weeks ago, and you need a solution to something, and thus far, answers and clarity and wisdom and, and, and relief and direction, they just aren't coming. Then the natural reaction, the navel-gazing reaction to that is to just say, why not, Lord? Like, why is this happening? I've asked you for wisdom. You're not giving it. Why can't you just give me what I need like yesterday? I want you to see the story where God doesn't tell Joseph that Mary is telling the truth right away. He just doesn't tell him because he needed Joseph to wrestle with what to do because that wrestling would actually prepare him to make the right choice when he did have all the information. And what you need to know is that God will not leave you in confusion forever. He's going to bring clarity. But if he's withholding it in this season, he's got a purpose in that. He's shaping you while you wait. He's forming you while you seek. And ask him, ask him what you need to learn. Why you ask him for wisdom, ask him what you need to learn while you wait. And invite his transforming work in that. Don't despise the wrestling. Give yourself to it. Secondly, don't despise the cost. You need, you need to know, okay, I want, I want to make this clear. Joseph was a sinner. Right? He was not perfect. But you know what? Here in this, this one situation, he got it right. Like, I don't know how he could have handled it better. And you know what his great reward for that was? Everybody hated him. Everybody thought less of him. His business was hurt. His finances would be hurt. His reputation would never, ever recover, all because he got it right and obeyed God. Now, there are tremendous rewards for believing in Jesus, and they all come to us by grace. Forgiveness of all your sins cannot be trumped by anything. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the gift of eternal life, the provision of your needs, purpose in his mission, and more. There are rewards for believing in Jesus, but I, for the life of me, cannot figure out how we've created an ideology that our faith should not cost us anything. Where do we get the idea that our faith should be easy and convenient? Where do we get the idea that it should just fit in nicely to all our other priorities and all our other chases? How do we read this Bible and think that God would ever be okay with it if I never give to his kingdom and never serve his mission and never share his gospel and never be the hands and feet of Jesus to others and never make non-believers a priority and yet still expect him to give me comfort and blessings and health? Where do we find that? 
God wants to change us. He wants to mold us in his image. There has to be cost in that. There's some things that are only learned in a fiery furnace. So the reality is if you're a follower of Jesus and you're living a life of cost avoidance, God's just going to bring cost your way. Because he won't tolerate anything less than us becoming more like him. Charles Spurgeon said, he won't, there are no crown wearers in heaven who are not cross bearers here below. Vance Havner said, we need men of the cross with the message of the cross bearing the marks of the cross. One of the quickest ways to get over navel gazing is embracing the idea that King Jesus is worth whatever cost or whatever sacrifice that we can give him. And the last encouragement is this, is just seek the real price. See, to, to embrace sacrifice, to, to embrace cost for Jesus is the opposite of navel gazing. And yes, it's hard, and yes, it costs something, but one of the best ways to do it is understanding what the real prize is. Because no matter how many times we put ourselves first, no matter how often we do it, it never fulfills us. It's part of why we keep chasing it, because it never actually brings anything lasting. But if we seek to honor and please and glorify God, then that is the very life we've been created to live, and that's the very best way to live. Joseph sought to honor God above all else. He didn't consider himself in the situation. In honoring God, he chose mercy. In honoring God, he honored Mary. In honoring God, he honored God's son. And while he gave up a lot, think about all that he gained. Think about everything that he saw, everything that he witnessed, everything that he got to be a part of. Think about the privilege of caring for and raising God's son, the savior of the world, of caring for the child that will save you from your sins. I mean, can you imagine? He's the only one who's ever got the privilege of raising a perfect child. How great would parenting be if your kids were perfect, right? He got that. No one else ever has. Because looking up and taking focus off ourselves always brings a cost. But if we're just faithful enough to try it, then we'll learn that God makes it worth it every single time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for examples in your word that are there as warnings. God, are there, there to show us the path not to go. And I also thank you for examples in your word that show us what it looks like when a sinful fallen person gets it right in one instance. To see the selflessness, to see the cost, to see the sacrifice, and to see all the blessing that came from it in the end. So Lord, as we as a church try to develop the discipline of looking up, as we try to get over ourselves, would you, would you help us to model the selflessness of this that we see on display here in Matthew 1? Would you help us seek to honor you in all that we do? And in that, to not despise the wrestling, because we understand you have purposes in it. To not despise the cost, because we understand you're worth it. Would you do this in our midst? Would you do this for the sake of those that you would have us reach in the name of Jesus Christ? And would you do this for your glory? And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, before we wrap up our service, we're going to give you some time to pray with the Lord and spend some time wrestling with some things that maybe he put on your heart this morning. There's some guidance on the screens for you, but this is, this is just a time for you and him, and I would, I would encourage you to take advantage of it, and so this is yours.